All right. So we will be continuing in our sermon series today from the letter of 1 Peter. 1 Peter, uh, if you're new, just to give you a little bit of context, uh, was written by Peter, who was one of Jesus' 12 disciples in the first century, written to uh, Gentile Christians in Asia Minor, uh, which today would be northwestern Turkey. <clears throat> they were experiencing a fair uh, amount of persecution as a result of their newfound faith in Christ. And so Peter wrote to them to encourage them and to give them hope not to give up and to, to call them back to uh, their identity as the people of God and to realize what an incredible rich treasure this was and that they should not be discouraged, not be intimidated by suffering, not be uh, put off by persecution, but to stand strong and to remember who they were. And so that is exactly what today's passage is about. Um, here at Grace Church, we love expository preaching where we pick a book of the Bible and we just go straight through and we try not to skip over parts that are difficult, but just to, to trust that each part of it is God's word to us and can speak to us where we're at and give us hope and encouragement and correction. So we'll be continuing today. This is a transitional passage where uh, Paul has been talking about the great hope that we have as believers in Christ, and he's going to be moving into talking specifically about the, the various situations you might face in your life, especially relationships at home, relationships at the workplace, and how to, to be the light of Christ, especially when your faith is coming under fire because of the context. But today, he's laying the foundation for that, uh, helping the church to remember who they are. So I'm not going to spend too much time introducing this. We're just going to get straight into it, but I am going to read the passage for us today. So you can uh, check out your pew Bible. It's page 1004. 14, uh, or you can follow on the screen behind me. Again, this is 1 Peter chapter 2. We're going to read verses 4 through 10 today. As you come to him, a living stone rejected by men, but in the sight of God, chosen and precious, you yourselves, like living stones, are being built up as a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood. To offer spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. For it stands in Scripture Behold, I am laying in Zion a stone, a cornerstone chosen and precious, and whoever believes in him will not be put to shame. So the honor is for you who believe, but for those who do not believe, the stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone and a stone of stumbling and a rock of offense. They stumble because they have disobeyed the word as they were destined to do. But you are a, a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. Once you were not a people, but now you are God's people. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. All right, so the first point here, I want to call this the inevitability of conflict. The inevitability of conflict. Jesus is a, right, a lightning rod. 
So Peter is making the point, helping them to understand that there is no neutrality when it comes to Christ. There will be people who come to Christ and love him and accept him and hold him to be chosen and precious, right? They will choose him, but then there is the reality that not everybody will respond to him in the same way. And so a couple times in this passage, Peter um, makes reference to the fact that he is the stone that is rejected by some. So if you look at verse 4 with me, Uh, As you come to him, a living stone rejected by men, but in the sight of God, chosen and precious. Right? Christ is precious to you. He's precious to some. But there are others who do not receive Christ. They, they do not put their faith and trust in him. They reject Christ. Uh, for, for the New Testament writers, there's no middle ground. It's an either or. Either you are for Christ and you are a follower and, and you hold him to be the Lord of life, the, the source of salvation and light. There's an acceptance and embrace or there is a rejection. And so Peter is saying this, he's spelling this out so that his audience understands that when you follow Christ in the world, you have a target on your back. That there is danger because of the reality that people, some people go to him, believe in him, others don't. Verses 7 through 8, he continues in a sort of similar vein. So the honor is for you who believe, but for those who do not believe... The stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone and a stone of stumbling, a rock of offense. Why is it that there's this conflict? Why is the conflict inevitable? Is it the fact that Christians, like once they become Christians, that they all of a sudden become hostile to their neighbors or that they're being intentionally antagonistic? I don't think that's what it is. But Peter is setting up, he's helping us to understand the reality that to say Christ is Lord is a political statement, right? It's It's a decisive claim that Jesus and Jesus alone is Lord. He is the source of security, the source of salvation, and it is a claim that uh, jeopardizes the, the current structure, the current order of things, which is oftentimes based on and supported by all different kinds of false gods and idols. So someone once said that uh, if you stand for anything in the world, great, my wife shared this with me uh, earlier this week. I apologize, I forget who the author was, but if you stand for anything in this world, you're going to have people that take issue with that, right? It, it's not po- the only way that you could go through life and never offend anybody, never upset anybody, is if you never take a stand on anything. But if you have a strong opinion or you're willing to stick by something that you hold to firmly, right, you will make some people upset. This was a secular author that said this. And I would say if that truth that you hold to is Christ, then it will be doubly true. That that is going to be an issue for some people. We need to be prepared for this. need to understand that it, it has always been the case. And the Bible is filled with stories, examples of when you hold to Christ as Lord, when you have faith in the true God, this creates a problem. A couple of examples in Scripture. Uh, Judges 6, uh, in our evening Bible story that Sherry and Jill have been doing a wonderful job of leading. Uh, they're leading us through Judges, and in chapter 6, we, we haven't quite gotten there yet on Sunday night. The next class is tonight, by the way, if you'd like to come. But, you know, uh, God calls the, the leader Gideon. He, he somewhat seems to call him out of the blue. And uh, Gideon's like, okay, uh, he kind of tests that. He says, okay, God, I'll follow you. God says, Gideon, I'm going to use you to deliver your people from their enemies, but I need you to take care of something first, Gideon. The very first order of business is I need you to go to your father's house and cut down his idols. And Gideon says, 
okay, let's do it. So he, he sneaks into his father's home at nighttime and cuts down and burns the idols. And the very next day, the Israelites wake up and they're like, what happened to our idols? And they say, bring out your son. We want to kill him. So when you follow God, right, this, this disturbs the economy. It disturbs the culture because it is, a, it is a claim that God alone is God. Daniel chapter 3, a similar situation. Uh, Nebuchadnezzar builds an idol in his own image, and he says, okay, everybody, when you hear the sound of all the instruments playing, bow down and worship. It's Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. They are, they are Jews from Israel. They're, they're friends with Daniel. They say, we believe in one God, and we will not bow. And what happens? Conflict ensues. And this angers and upsets everybody, and so they are cast into the fire, but God delivers them. Those are a couple Old Testament passages. There's a New Testament uh, stories of this as well. Of course, Jesus raised all sorts of havoc uh, in Israel as a result of pointing people towards the gracious, loving Father that he knew. Um, I love the story in Acts chapter 19 where... um, Peter, uh, Paul goes into Ephesus, and Ephesus was known for one of the seven wonders of the ancient world, a temple to the goddess Artemis. It was a very, very big deal. It was a, a beautiful temple, uh, temple. Artemis is the goddess of the hunt, the goddess of agriculture, the goddess of reproduction. She was a very big deal in the ancient uh, world. But when, when Paul went to Ephesus and began to preach the gospel of Jesus Christ, it, there was an economic disturbance because people started to believe Paul, and they started to come to faith in Christ. And so what happened? had economic implications. Uh, the, the, the entire business that was connected to the temple and to Artemis began to lose money. And so there was a silversmith by the name of, blanking on his name. You'll have to look. It's an assignment for you. Chapter 19 of Acts. He gathers all the silversmiths. And he says, listen, this guy, Paul, he's creating a problem for us because he's preaching that there's only one God and we have this Artemis here. We have this beautiful temple that we've made and now we're losing business. Uh, they're not buying our idols anymore. And so the, the, whole, the whole point is that when believers turn to faith in God, right, they stop bowing the knee. They stop serving the idols of the culture. Now, in the ancient times, these are false gods, but in our times, perhaps these are idols of the heart. And so a question that each believer in Christ should ask themselves is this, what idol am I refusing to bow down to? Cultural idols, things like wealth and prestige and reputation and success. What false god am I unwilling to bend the knee to? In your own life, you're saying, yeah, the culture might live for this. It might be dedicated to that. It might might see supreme worth and value is in career, is in having a big home and living comfortably in the suburbs. But I'm not going to bow the knee to that idol. And I'm going to let my life be an indication that there's one true God, there's one true source of life, and that is Jesus, right? If we do that, that's going to create a tension. That, that's going to create a problem. And this is what he talks about, Peter talks about here, which is the offense of the gospel. Right? Christ is a stumbling block, which is strange, right? Because we could think, well, God loves people, right? And didn't Jesus came to help and came to set people free? Why are people becoming so angry with Jesus? Why would they be angry with me? All I'm doing is saying that, you know, Christ is Lord. Why is that a problem? Well, you know, have you ever gone to the mechanic and um, 
you drive your car there because there's like a little issue with your car, and so you take the car, you get it fixed, but then afterward, the mechanic calls you into his office, and he says, uh, yeah, I need to talk to you. You're like, okay, and you kind of know what's coming, and so you go and you talk to him, and like, yeah, we were able to fix the problem, but I have some bad news for you. You're like, what? And then he begins to talk, and he's talking about struts and, and shocks and alternators and, and carburetors, and your, your, your mind starts to spin, right? Because you don't know anything about all that stuff. And, and then he looks at you and, and you, and he says, you know, I'm really sorry, but uh, it's probably going to cost about $2,000 to, to get all this stuff fixed, right? Have you had that situation? And then your, your mind is blown because you drove that car there. <laughs> You're like, well, the car got here. And I just needed you to fix the one little thing. And now you're telling me that there's all this other stuff the matter with it. And it's going to cost $2,000 to get all that stuff fixed. And you get mad and you start thinking nasty things about the, the mechanic and think that he's probably just trying to rip you off. And you're like, there's no way I'm spending $2,000 to get this car fixed. It works fine. So you drive away. But see, the thing is, why are you hating on the mechanic? The mechanic's just doing his job. You know, I know my mechanic on Glen Ave. He's a good guy. He's a believer. He's not trying to rip me off. Right? He told me all that stuff because he's genuinely concerned because he knows his stuff, right? They're not trying to rip us off, usually. <laughs> you know, <laughs> they're trying to help. They're trying to help, but, but we get mad at the mechanic. It's not the mechanic's fault that my car has 100,000 miles on it and that it's old and that there is such a thing as rust. It's not his fault. So why do we blame the mechanic? Why do we act like they're the one trying to steal our money or something like that. Well, you know, I think sometimes Jesus is like the mechanic. And, and is there an offense to the gospel? Is there a claim about what's wrong with us and what the solution is? Yeah, and people don't want to hear it. People don't want to hear it. And so the inevitability of conflict is the reality that when our lives are about Christ, that will create a problem for people. It is a very, very impactful, powerful claim with lots of implications for what people are living their lives about. And so we got to be prepared for that. How do we prepare for that? Get ready for battle? Do we get ready for fight? Do we get organized and try, you know, try to rally a political party to fight our cause? Right? These are maybe ways that we think about, okay, if there's going to be a conflict, what do we do? But that's not what Peter does. So this brings me to point number two. In the light of the coming persecution, in the light of the conflict, right? Jesus is a stumbling block. Some people reject him. Others love him. This creates an economic or political crisis. What do we do? How do we prepare? Come back to identity. Come back to understanding who you are called to be as the church and what comes along with that. So the second point here has to do with the church's identity. Who is the church? So let's take a look at verse 5 uh, and then verses 9 through 10. You yourselves, like living stones, are being built up as a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood, to offer spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. Right? In the light of the, of the hardship, in the light of the, the trouble that the church is facing, he wants to remind that, take a step back, remember who you are. Remember who you have been called to be. He continues in a similar vein, uh, verses 9 through 10. But you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his possession, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. Once you were not a people, but now you are God's people. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. 
So he's talking to people, right, who are experiencing persecution, who are experiencing marginalization, right? They thought being a Christian would be great. It turns out this creates all kind of problems within the community because their lives are offensive. It's this, it's this stumbling block. So in light of that marginalization, in light of that persecution, he wants to remind them who they are. And he does so by using this very, very lofty language to give them a, an incredible picture of the, the rich privilege of being the people of God. Now, I've been wrestling all week trying to figure out how to explain this because uh, Paul uses metaphor on top of metaphor. In this section, he takes one metaphor, the priesthood metaphor, and then he piles on top of that another metaphor about being a temple and then another metaphor about being a chosen kind of possession of God. So what is going on here? And if I could summarize it, he's taking Old Testament imagery for the people of God and language promises that were used to the Jews and then appropriating that and applying it to the Gentiles. Okay, and if you look in the Old Testament, of course, he's, he's quoting from Isaiah chapter 8. He's quoting from Hosea. He's quoting from Psalm 118. But there's one passage he does not quote directly, but in my opinion, is the kind of pivotal passage that he's referring to, and that is Exodus chapter 19, which I want you to, I want you to, to, to read this with me. I'll read it. You listen. But then as, as I read it, look for all the overlap in the language that is being used here. Um, Exodus chapter 19, what's the background here? Moses has just delivered the, the, the people of God out of slavery in Egypt. They had been slaves in Egypt under Pharaoh. Moses came in. There was a dramatic showdown between Yahweh and the gods of Egypt. You know, the ten plagues, it wasn't just about disasters, but each plague was God saying, right, I am stronger than the gods of Egypt. God was making a name for himself. He heard the cries of his people. He's bringing them out of suffering. Moses brought them through the Red Sea. They finally make it to safety. They're in the desert, and it's at the desert that they're at Mount Sinai, and, and God enters into a covenant relationship with his, the Israelites and saying, I'm going to be your God. You're going to be my people. You're going to be my treasured possession. I'm giving you the law here as part of our covenant, which is going to help you understand what it will look like for you to be my exceptional, sacred, chosen people in the world. And so, right, uh, Moses Moses goes up on Mount, on Mount Sinai. He's meeting with God, and this is what it says. While Moses went up to God, the Lord called to him out of the mountain, saying, Thus you shall say to the house of Jacob, and tell the people of Israel, You yourselves have seen what I did to the Egyptians, and how I bore you on eagles' wings and brought you to myself. Now, therefore, if you will indeed obey my voice and keep my covenant, you shall be my treasured possession. You see that word possession used there again? Uh, same word Peter uses. Treasured possession among all peoples. For all the earth is mine. And verse 6 is key. And you shall be to me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. These are the words that you shall speak to the people Israel. Treasured possession, a holy nation, a royal priesthood. God is saying, listen, I took you out of the, to the Israelites. I took you out of the, the fiery furnace, the pit of suffering, out of slavery. I rescued you. I've brought you here. You are now my chosen possession, and I've made you to be a temple. I've made you to be priests, and you have this special role and function in the world. 
Peter is borrowing from this exact passage. He's using all the same concepts, and he's now applying it incredibly to the Gentile believers who have put their faith in Christ who are currently experiencing suffering. He's saying, listen, I know you're going through a lot. I know times are tough. I know you're coming, you have a target on your back. You're coming under pressure. You're suffering. But what God did for the Jews by bringing them out of slavery and making them his treasured possession, God is taking you out of your suffering, out of your marginalization. He is establishing you as a new community to be a royal priesthood, to be a special sacred possession of God in the world to declare the praises and the excellencies of God. Isn't that incredible? You know, when you're going through a tough time, and you're, you're experiencing hardship, and perhaps you are experiencing real persecution and hardship, to remember that you're not marginalized in the eyes of God. You are not a nobody in the eyes of God. But you are, part, you are a living stone in this temple that God is taking each one of his followers, and he's assembling in them into a temple to be a, a, a special sacred place where God makes his presence known and makes his glories known to the world. That's the church. It's really a, a lofty and incredible calling that, that God has given the church, isn't it? You know, we, I think to understand this, you know, and appreciate this a little bit more, we have to understand the worldview of the ancient peoples. Um, in the ancient times, the cosmology was basically this, and I apologize if this, for some of you, this is so boring. Some of you find this interesting, I know, but some of you think it's boring, so just bear with me. In the ancient cosmology, there's two worlds. There's the material world, physical world, which is earth, it's where we are, and then there's heaven. Heaven's up there. there. It's a separate world. It's where the spiritual beings are. It's where God is. It's where heaven is, all right? In the ancient cosmology, these two worlds are separate. They're very separate. They, they don't overlap. They're disconnected. God is with God in heaven, and, and we are here in the world. But in the ancient times, they believed that sometimes that divine heavenly sphere would overlap would intersect with the earthly world. And do you know what that intersection was, that overlap that connects heaven and earth? It was a temple. It was a temple. The temple is that, that, that gateway to the divine. It is that special place that, that it's in the world, you can go to it, but it is somehow connects us to what is beyond. And so in the ancient times, right, like when God set up the temple, he said, if you want to meet with me, come to the temple. God said, I'm going to cause my name to dwell in that temple. And you can read stories uh, in, in Exodus and later in Kings where the, the presence of God comes into the temple and meets the people in the temple. So the temple is this sacred, this gateway, this intersection between heaven and earth. That's the temple. Well, what about the priests? Well, the priests are the functionaries of the temple, right? The priests are, they're human, but they're sacred, Right? They're special. And so there's a whole big process that, that the priests, they have to be Levites, they have to be purified, they have to be of a special uh, family line, but the priests are designated as the representatives of God. So think about it. You have this temple where there's the overlap between heaven and earth. You have the priests who are the functionaries. You want to meet with God, you talk to a priest. You want to offer a sacrifice to God, you go to the temple, and the priest officiates the in interaction, the engagement. So in the ancient times, the temple or a priesthood was very, very special, very, very sacred. And then the Bible teaches that ultimately the temple is not a building, it's a person. 
It's Jesus Christ. Jesus said, tear down this building, referring to the temple. Tear down this temple. I will rebuild it in three days. And they didn't know what he was talking about, but the scripture teaches that later on, after Jesus was resurrected, they realized that Jesus himself became the temple. Right? What is the temple? We said it's that place where there's the overlap between heaven and earth. And, and Jesus, in his person, you have the divine, you have the human, fully connected in one person. But he, So he's the temple, he's the meeting place of heaven and earth. But he also is the priest, and Hebrews teaches that he's our high priest. He offers his blood as an atoning sacrifice that purifies us so that in the person of Jesus, we are able to have access to God. You following me? I know it's a lot. So Jesus is the temple. He is the priest. But now what does Peter say? You are living stones that are now being added and being built up to be the temple. You are priests, each one of you, the followers of Christ. You have this special, incredible role as the mediators of the presence of God in the world. Isn't that mind-blowing? Everything of church as a, as a building, as a place you go, that's, that's not what his understanding of the church is. His understanding of the church is it's a living organism made out of disciples who are each a living stone built on the cornerstone of Christ who together become the place where heaven and earth intersect. We become the divine vessel which the Holy Spirit fills. We become the embodiment of God in the world. So I, I say all that merely to point out that what is perhaps the most incredible, uh, incredibly important thing to understand is the privilege that the believers of Jesus Christ have even in the midst of suffering. To take a step back with whatever you're going through and realize, like, wait a second, I'm not alone. The world might be marginalizing me. The world might think I'm a nobody. But in the eyes of God, right, we together, the followers of Christ, become this temple, this this overlap between heaven and earth, this, this vessel infused with the divine presence, and we get to minister that to the world. You know, privilege, that word privilege, has kind of a negative ring, doesn't it, for a lot of us? Maybe in the media you hear about white privilege. Um, but, you know, I think what's, what's you know, the, a problem with privilege is actually when you have the privilege but you don't realize it, right? If you have privilege, fine. Fine, you have privilege, right? Don't deny it. Accept it, but then realize that with privilege comes responsibility, comes opportunity, right? What does Scripture say? I'm going to bless you to be a blessing. So if you have privilege, if you have blessing, great. Know that privilege, know that blessing, and, and bless others with it. The, the audience that Peter was, was running to would not have felt privileged. They would have felt like, wow, our faith has become a decided disadvantage in our culture. This is not good. But Peter, writing to people who are being marginalized, says, you have no idea how privileged you are. Pastor Armando, last week, he preached, right, verses 18 and 19 from last week in chapter 1, right? He needs, he needs them to realize the incredible privilege that they have as God's people, knowing what God has done for you in Christ, verse 18, knowing that you are ransomed from the feudal ways inherited from your forefathers, not with perishable things such as silver or gold, but with the precious blood of Christ, like that of a lamb without blemish or spot. The key, my friends, to overcoming every trial and suffering that is attached to following Jesus in this life is remembering our identity, remembering who we are. And with that identity, with that calling, 
comes a mission, which brings us to point number three today, the church's noble purpose or the church's noble calling. With a privileged identity as being this temple, this royal priesthood, comes an amazing privilege and a role that God has called us to. Right When the church comes under fire, when we are going through a tough situation, it's very, very easy to get into a defensive posture and to think we got to fight, we got to defend ourselves. But Peter says, no, no, that's not what being this temple is about. Being a temple, being a priesthood comes with a very special role. Let's look again at at verse 5. You yourselves, like living stones, are built as a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood to offer spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. So we see there this this idea that we are called to make spiritual sacrifices. That's part of our role. And then he's going to expand that, verse 9, but you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession, that you might proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness and into his marvelous light. The priests and the temple have two primary functions. Number one, offer sacrifices. Number two, to proclaim the greatness and the glory, the majesty of God. So Peter, in verse 5, right, he says, uh, your job as these priests is to offer sacrifices. But he talks about sacrifices in a new context, right? The sacrifices in the temple in the ancient times were to be a, to bring a grain offering, and they would bring that up on the altar, and they would burn it as an offering to God. Or perhaps a sacrifice would be an animal, and you would bring, and there would be an animal sacrifice. So he, he wants to be clear that when he says that your, your job as a temple or a priest is to offer sacrifices, we're not talking about animal sacrifices, thank goodness. Um, but rather to live a life that is in keeping with the transformation that God has brought about through Christ in your life, right? Uh, We could go to Romans 12 to understand this a little bit better. What, What he means by offering sacrifices, Romans 12, 1 and 2, I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. Do not conform any longer to the pattern of this world, but be renewed by the transforming of your mind, that by testing you may discern what is the will of God, what is good and acceptable and perfect. The sacrifices that this temple are called to make this new priesthood is simply to live the new redeemed life that is yours in Christ. The most honoring thing that you and I could do as followers of God is simply to be the people that he has redeemed us to be. You know, before knowing Christ, did you fall into sin? Did you hold on to unforgiveness? Were you engaged in stuff that now you were ashamed of? Were you a resentful person? Were you an impatient person? Were you, were you angry? And having come to receive salvation in Christ, did you realize that God is rich and merciful, that he's completely forgiven all of your sins, that he's taken away your shame, that even though you were an enemy of God through what Christ has done, you've been brought into fellowship with God, you've been made a a son or a daughter of God. And has that being born again, has that experience of faith in Christ transformed you in any way? Then the sacrifice that you and I can live is is simply being authentic to that new person that God has made you to be. Listen, I I bet that there's any number of us in here perhaps had parents or maybe a father who was overly strict with us. 
And I don't know if maybe you grew up in a home where there was abuse or there was not a lot of love. And maybe you grew up feeling like you were never good enough and you broke the rules and so there's a lot of shame put on you. And so your entire life you've carried a sense of failure or you've carried a sense of, of like not being good enough and you're always trying to please and always trying to earn approval but always feeling like you're coming up short. And maybe that, that angry word from a parent or a loved one has just hung over you like a cloud your whole life. But then you come to meet Jesus and you realize that, that God is the father that you never had but that he is a God of love and a God of compassion, and that he loves you so much that he was willing to shed his own blood for you, that that would remove every curse and every ounce of shame on your life, and he's given you a completely new identity and says you don't have to be ashamed, you don't have to feel like a failure, you don't have to feel like you're always falling short because I have gone the distance for you, I've renewed you, I've brought you into my family, you, I have nothing but love and grace and kindness towards you in Christ. And has that changed you? Has that changed you, being born again in the kingdom of God? Then what would Peter say? You want to offer a sacrifice to God of praise? Be that new person. Be the new person God has made you to be. Be confident. Right? Live in that sonship. Live in that gift. Accept this thing that, that God has given you and let it shine in your life. Right? What did Jesus say? I've given you a light. Don't hide the light. Let the light shine. Right? Our lives, the lives of the believers of Jesus, ought to be pointing, pointing the world to the greatness and love of a God who's got nothing but compassion and kindness and generosity and grace for us. And so when you go to work, you go to your family, you're letting that love shine, you are a living sacrifice. You are allowing the fruit of the Spirit to bless those around you. It is exactly what Peter had in mind. This is the go. Gather, grow, give, and go to be that light of Christ wherever he has put us. So that's part of it. And the other part of it is not just uh, the, the acts of kindness and love and mercy, but also the all-important task of the church, verse 9, proclaiming the excellencies of God who has called us out of darkness and into his light. The church has one primary function. It is the absolute most important primary function of every local church, and that is to make God famous, to, to proclaim the greatness and the glory of God, a God who has rescued us uh, out of darkness and brought us into the kingdom. And this is true on both a formal level and an informal. Formally, what this means is that when you come into a local church, that you ought to experience within the body of Christ, right, when we have worship, and we sing songs, right? You ought to come away every single Sunday with a, with a greater appreciation for and the beauty of God, the majesty of God, right? And that is why, as a church, the gospel is so important for us because it's the gospel that points us to the goodness and the glory of God, right? Every worship service ought to be helping us have a greater appreciation for the beauty of God, proclaiming the excellencies of God. And so if you're a member here and you're not seeing that, then you should come and talk to the elders and talk to me and say, Ben, I want to see a bigger, better God every Sunday. I want to hear about why is this God so great? Why is this God so special? Why is this a God that, that we would want to be excited about? Like formally speaking, this is the job of the local church to proclaim the excellencies of God, to make God known. Uh, the God who has called us out of darkness and into his light. So we do that formally, but there's also an informal way that that is happening as well, right? Each of us is a priest. Each of us is a living stone. And so my question for you is, are you allowing 
the goodness and the graciousness and the majesty of God to shine through in your life? When was the last time you shared your testimony? When was the last time you shared about why God is good, why God is great? Um, this past week, I visited a grace group. Did you know that at Grace Church, we have 25 different grace groups? And so a, a couple of us are visiting all the grace groups because we want to see what God is doing in, in the community. And I was visiting a grace group, and if the, you know, some of you were there, you know which ones it was. Uh, I won't say who, but it was great. It was a, a fun time. There was a wonderful fellowship that was happening, and, and one of the leaders just began to share from her heart about this incredible thing that God had done uh, showing up in her life in an incredible way. And every single person in that group was blessed when they heard that. And their minds were blown, like, wow, how good is God? How amazing is God that, that he could show up in this way? Friends, you don't need to be a priest or a pastor uh, in order to let the goodness of God radiate from your life. We have all, every person who's in Christ has been rescued out of sin, rescued out of death, and brought into the kingdom of God's light. We're part of this new kingdom with Jesus as king. And so you don't have to be a pastor to share that. But your life and the stories you tell about the goodness of God in your life can powerfully, powerfully impact other people by letting them know the greatness and the glory of this God that we gather every week to, to worship and to make his name known. So I encourage you to be bold. When life feels unstable, when we're suffering, when we feel like the world is coming at us, Peter reminds us that we have Jesus Christ as a firm cornerstone. He says, whoever trusts in him will never be put to shame. For those of us who are faithful, who stick with Christ, who hold on to him, we have his praise, his recognition, and his honor to look forward to when we meet him in the new heavens and the new earth. Let's pray. In fact, can I invite you to stand? I, I want to pray uh, over you. You are the temple. You are the priests. Band, you guys can come up and get us started. Lord God, I pray for every single person that is here today, all who have put faith and trust in Christ. They are the temple. Each one, Lord, is a living stone, a part of this royal priesthood that you are assembling from every corner of the earth. I pray that every person here senses in their own heart that they are a part of the spiritual building that you are assembling on the cornerstone of Christ. And I pray that every single person here would recognize they are a priest. They are called to be uh, this, this place where heaven and earth meet, the, the divine embodiment to be filled with the Spirit so that their lives knit together in community in fellowship one with one another can be a vessel that you by your spirit are filling with incredible glory and majesty and may they even in the midst of suffering even in the midst of trials know that they have this incredible incredible privilege that is that is theirs through what christ has done on their behalf lord we pray this morning for your joy to fill our hearts renew us in our purpose and our identity in you we pray all of this in the name of jesus amen